Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. The way you said potholes made it sound like you were in favor of potholes. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Leave the potholes alone. (laughs) (laughs) Potholes? Why the hell would you want to fix them? Make potholes great again. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. And I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrea Lopez Viafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. Am I just managing editor? Yeah. No more daily news? Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Congrats. Take that, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Miss you, man. Did you miss his, like, uh, incessant shifting and, and jitter no i don't okay <laughs> i do well, a little bit but well you know tie-dye shirts can be itchy yes <laughs> it's true i don't know if that's true but and those are the dulcet tones of our own education reporter jacob McQuinney. what's up jacob nothing much scott lewis how you doing coming up on the show this week the city's first new safe camping site for homeless residents is open This week, Mayor Todd Gloria and other city leaders announced the opening of the campsite at 20th and B. It's the first of two that are expected to open, along with a ban on camping in public land. We'll discuss the details of this whole effort by the mayor, plus a fact check that R. Will Huntsbury pulled off about his claim about how many shelter spaces he's opened up. Finally, you may head into Home Depot soon and get asked to sign something to fix potholes. It's a ballot initiative that could be on the 2024 ballot with several other tax increases. I'll go through the behind the scenes maneuvering going on about that. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, there's a news story that caught our eye. This is in the Union Tribune. I'll read the lead. Two protesters offended by a pride exhibit at the Rancho Penasquitos Library have checked out nearly all the books in the display and vowed to keep them until the library eliminates what they call, quote, inappropriate content for children. Uh, <laughs> the, vow, the vow is what gets me, the, right? The vow. <laughs> From our cold, dead hands, <laughs> you will not have these stories back. Now, um, uh, Jacob, you were pointing out how this is a, 
a low um, low energy protest. It is, yeah. There's no like laying on the Supreme Court steps. No signs were made. It's just library card and and you're good. And then take some books home, I guess. It it has the interesting impact that you and I talked about about the Streisand effect. Mm-hmm. We we explain the Streisand effect, please. Yeah. So He's basically, not taking credit for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate the citation. So so basically, the Streisand effect refers to when a uh, an individual's attempt to um, essentially hide something brings further attention to it. Uh, right. The original example was, and I may be getting some of the details wrong here, but there were two photographers who did a project of, of photographing all of California's coast. Uh, one of those photographs happened to include Barbara Streisand's beachside home. Um, and apparently Streisand employed a lawyer to say, hey, you guys got to take this picture down before the lawyer had gotten into the, in, involved, the photo had been viewed maybe a handful of times. And, and after the lawyer got involved, all of a sudden the photo was all over the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this does have a similar effect, right? I mean, right. Who, who really would have known outside of, of uh, this small community of Rancho Penasquitos that, that there was a pride exhibit at the mm-hmm. library? And, and now they've drawn much more attention to not only the exhibit, but all of the books therein. And the exhibit itself was like pretty simple. It was yeah, it, it's like it, a flag, and you know, no, no signs. shade to the to the librarian, but it it, it was similarly low effort as, yeah. as this act as this activism. Yeah. <laughs> it's a classic like little library or bookstore thing to do. Like oh, yeah. it's it's Black History Month, and uh-huh. here's some things on that topic, or oh, the Titanic movie just came out. Here's all the stuff we have on the Titanic or whatever. And it's just like well, mentioning Black History Month, Andrea, you pulled up some of the books. It, uh-huh. it, it was interesting that there is a. A book, What is Black Lives Matter, that it seems was in that display. Did, mm-hmm. did they check that out as well? They're against yeah. LGBTQ theory and like Black Lives what Matter. What is Black Lives Matter? Yeah, yeah that it, was included in there. It, the description of that one is it tells the history of political and social movement that advocates for nonviolent civil disobedience and protests against the incidents of police brutality and all racially motivated violence. And okay, well, <laughs> better put that one in the garage. Uh, yeah, they, they want to leave the like biography of Malcolm X there, but but take home the like nonviolent protest one, right? Yeah, then, it, <laughs> then there's the like, there's the alternate impact here where like they check out all these books and now they're going to, the, the counter protest is going to be to buy all the books again. Mm-hmm. And the library would have to buy the books again too. So the the Streisand effect is in full uh, optimization mode, yeah. where like now they're going to get more money to the publishers <laughs> of the book. I, I just okay. Uh, uh, there is just a moral panic, and it's it's comical, but it's also dark. Yeah, mm-hmm. like if you don't want to read those books, don't read them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want your kids to read them, you can try to control what they collect. At, you know, we all have certain control. But we all have to deal with the fact that we live in a free society and at about 12 or 13, they're going to start doing things <laughs> that, that, you know, <laughs> and maybe just talk to them about your beliefs and what you think. Uh, but the idea that that this this might have a Streisand effect in your house too, right? Like, <laughs> well, all of a sudden the books aren't in the library, but they're like sitting on your bedside table. I mean, what happens when little Joey walks in and sees... Uh, Rainbow Parade by Emily Nielsen. Or, like, oh, cool colors. Like, <laughs> yeah. Or the new queer conscience by Adam Eli. And they're like, boy, I hadn't thought about, you know, queer theory, but now I'm like, <laughs> all of a sudden you're sitting there at the breakfast table with, with your eggs and your kid comes out with like a, a white t shirt with Stonewall was a riot, like sharpie onto it, you know? 
I, I think that, you know, maybe they're putting them in a safe or something. They yeah. seem like yeah. the, the type of people. Who, yeah, yeah. We, they have to put them in a safe. Like funny with, to think with of. With other combustibles like ammunition. <laughs> sitting in a safe. I don't know. The idea of like them going into a library, it's like what I was talking about earlier. It's like coming in when you're going to a store and you're buying something really embarrassing and you're like, it's not for me. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's for so-and-so, you know, like I just Wearing the I would love to imagine like them. Yeah. Like taking this books out. So the, the logistics of it are you can check out what you found up to, up to 50 books mm-hmm. at a time. Cause I, yeah, being such a nerd, I was like, wait, how can <laughs> they even check out that many books at a time? You know, cause library books have a, a limit on um, how long you can have a book checked out. So mm-hmm. turns out you can check out 50, you know, 50 books at a time. Um, and you can have them checked out for 30 days. And after 30 days, they automatically renew and it'll renew for five more times in 30 days each time. Now the city notoriously got rid of fines for mm-hmm. people. So, but there is a collections process still. So we may yeah. need to dig further about. Yeah. <laughs> so there, kind of- there's two things. And I think there's like a funny troll here because the automatic renewal process will do that five more times. Um, however, if somebody has requested to read the book, then it won't renew and that individual needs to return the book. And if they don't return the book, then it kicks off the process for, um, you know, if a book is gone for more than 60 days, then it's considered a lost book. And then you do get sent to collections and um, those fees can add up. I just got to say, I think 50 books is way too many for somebody to be able to at once (laughs) yeah for 30 days i mean i guess they extend but but 50 50 books it's that's dedication yeah Yeah. you could rent like the whole goosebumps series (laughs) like at the same time (laughs) and if you were yeah yeah have a long weekend of rl stein Well, if you are a donor, a member of Voice San Diego, you'll get a note from me about some uh, changes we went through, went through a restructuring. Uh, I've been talking pretty openly over the last few months about uh, us and and how Voice San Diego was collecting a deficit and uh, ending the fiscal year and making a lot of pleas to all of you to support uh, Voice San Diego. And many of you did. And thank you for that. Uh, we did come in a little bit short and um, and needed to construct a budget for the new fiscal year that was tighter and had a lower burn rate. And uh, out of that, we, we did have to lay off two employees and uh, we're not going to fill the role that uh, Andy Keats had here. So that was a pretty uh, big cut and uh, obviously had some uh, impact and some discussion online that followed it. They've gotten a lot of outpouring of support, and I think uh, just first off, they are great people who, uh, if uh, uh, you, you have the opportunities to consider for different roles, you should, absolutely. And uh, these are always hard. Last time I went through this, uh, 12 years ago, it was brutal, and um, I never wanted to do it again. I swore I never would, but uh, here we are again. Now, uh, I wanted to discuss a little bit about the news world, though, um, because I think it's important to keep in mind sometimes. So um, we are a a nonprofit. We get our money from uh, donors. About 70, 80% of our um, dollars right now come from individuals like you out there. We used to get a lot more uh, from national uh, sources, uh, foundation grants and stuff. And uh, that was because we were like the darling, right? We were like figuring things out in this nonprofit space. We weren't the first news nonprofit. 
Uh, obviously, there were some public radio stations and others. The Center for Public Integrity had existed years before. Uh, we weren't the first online news organization. There were some before that, but we were the first to combine those two things, nonprofit and online for a, a local area. And now there's like three, 400 of them across the country. And so the foundations that used to support us and others uh, now have uh, 400 little you know birds asking for the same uh, resources. And so it's just a much different thing. And they always said, and we always pledged to diversify our funding. And we have, we've had a lot of success with that. But there's a lot of individuals now who give whatever they can from $35 to $100,000. Um, but uh, we were, we, and I think a lot of news organizations saw a big jump in, 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 in audience and in support during the pandemic and during the Trump years. And I think that um, we all kind of assumed a lot of that would stick and that the growth would continue from that point. And it didn't. We are not the only news organization going through uh, something like this. Uh, KPBS, I saw, put out a big thing uh, trying to close their own budget deficit by the end of the year. Um, And of course, there's been a lot of national news about cutbacks and such. So uh, there is just a, a correction going on, I think, around uh, the news industry, and, and we're certainly not alone. Uh, I think one thing I'd just like to say is there are a lot of news organizations still trying to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, the advertising went from news organizations to groups like Facebook, uh, Google, Instagram, Craigslist, all of those places took all of that advertising and and frankly deliver it and deliver results and reporting better than a lot of news organizations did to those advertisers right and so every news organization basically is is in the same boat we are which is that they're trying to get money from people who value it now there's two ways to do that right you get money from donations or you get money from uh, um subscribers, people who pay to access the content. And the ones who are going for subscribers, they're doing well if they have massive audience, if they're like the New York Times with like hundreds of millions of potential eyeballs and converting a a substantial number of those to subscribers means significant revenue for them and that can fund a, a, a newsroom largely out of that. Now, it hasn't proven to be quite as successful for these like large metropolitan areas like the Dallas Morning News, the Union Tribune. And I think a lot of us are still wondering, like, will they be able to make that conversion happen? Because all of those news organizations are marching toward a cliff. And that is the, the moment where it is no longer uh, profitable or makes sense financially for them to print the newspapers and yet they get so much of their money from that print product. And so when that cliff comes, will they have enough digital subscriptions or digital revenue to build a bridge to the future uh, from that? And I think that's what we're all wondering. And so I think that uh, there's the other side is, is like us where it's, it's we're asking for donations. And I think that as much trouble as we've had and are experiencing and going through we do have a fundamentally sort of straightforward business model, which is we're going to try to do really good work, good shows like this, good 
impactful investigative journalism and newsletters that capture people's attention. And we want you to like that so much that you're willing to pay for it with whatever level you're comfortable with. Now, and we're probably gonna have very few moments where we say you have to pay for it in order to access it. Mostly it's gonna be, what is it worth to you? And so it's hard because I know that you're used to these like, hey, we need money uh, things. And, and sometimes you don't give and things are okay. And sometimes you don't give and <laughs> we have a horrible situation like this. Um, so uh, I think what I'd like to communicate is like, we mean it when we need your support. And for those of you who did support, that means a lot. And, um, you know, we're going to work hard over the next few uh, months and, and, and longer to show you that we still merit that and that, um, uh, and that, you know, the people uh, who helped build this place are, are, uh, are still proud of it as well. So. On a personal note, I just I, I'm I'm still a young journalist. Jesse, uh, when I was an intern here at Voice, was you know part editor and part therapist for me, and that was that was a really important experience. And I think uh, you, you know a news organization is only as, as as good as the caliber of the people that they attract and the people that they they employ. Um, and I I think luckily for Voice, we have had and continue to have some really 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 amazing people. Yep. Well, the mayor promised that the first of two open and safe camping sites for homeless San Diegans would open by July 1st, and it looks like he has come through on that. The 136-tent campsite is now open or will be open at 20th and B streets uh, for uh, people who um, the either the police or others can direct people to these these sites that they have tents set up uh, two people per tent 136 tents they have restrooms they have meals uh, set up they have security set up and it's being run by the dreams for change nonprofit you actually encountered uh, dreams for change recently. Andrea, at a, a safe camping or mm -hmm. a safe parking spot, what do you know about Dreams for Change? They operate several safe parking lots, which um, I guess it's in comparison, right? You, It's an open lot where you park your car. Um, they, in, d Depending on what contract they have and with who, they offer different things. But mainly it's sort of the same thing, access to restrooms, uh, maybe one meal or two. Um, access to showers, and the connection to case managers. Uh, now, the story I wrote about um, was specifically about a couple that was having a lot of issues just navigating the system as a whole. Um, but in speaking to the nonprofit, I think that they're dealing with a lot of the same challenges as many others are, and that's when they're trying to make connections from um, you know, removing people from the situation that they're in and getting them into housing. So yeah. I'll be curious to see how much of... Um, you know, that sort of uh, case manager or assistance there is at the lot or if that's going to happen. But, you know, they they're they manage these types of lots already. Yeah, it seems like there there will be a lot of relying on the existing case managers that these people have mm -hmm. um, to come to this new safe camping site as opposed to sending in new case managers from Dreams for Change, which mm -hmm. is an interesting setup. Mm -hmm. Well, the the. This opening matters also. The this week the city council passed uh, 
find the final vote on the mayor's proposal to ban tent encampments and tent camping on public land if there's shelter available and at all public land near uh, schools, parks, and uh, open space, waterways, shelters, uh, shelters, transit, these sort of sensitive areas at all times, whether there's shelter available or not. That has now passed all the steps it needs to at the city council. The mayor will sign it. And then he said he wouldn't start enforcing it until 30 days after this first lot was opened. Now it's open. So the clock starts. And so we'll have till the end of July when we start to see what the the mayor and the police do now to uh, enforce this ban going forward. So this is the first of two. They're supposed to open another much larger site at Lot O, which is also in the Balboa Park area. And Lot O is supposed to house several hundred uh, uh, tents. What is it, like more than 500 people are supposed to be able to go there. And it's going to be a, a big operation. We'll see how long it takes for them to get that together. But I think people looked at these sites and said, like, this this has the most potential to lower the visible homeless uh, uh, situation in downtown. They'll, they'll, that this is the easiest access uh, for people who are living in tents right now. This has the most potential to change that dynamic. And it's it's what they what they kept pointing to when they said that we are going to ban and and enforce this ban on city streets. So it it's supposed to have a pretty big impact. Now I think if it would have just opened itself, nobody would have reacted too much about it. But because it opened in concert with that ban, the mayor's office had to uh, hit away a ton of backlash of mm-hmm. people calling it a concentration camp or a, some sort of carceral response to the homeless crisis and um and that's probably not ideal right yeah i mean i think it's a really interesting situation because i think for a lot of folks more options were 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 needed and they, and they desired more options for people who were unsheltered um but its connection to the uh camping ban and the timing of it uh, and concerns that maybe they they've rushed it or don't have the right supplies or tents or whatever it is that they've really 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 been significant um, and and I think the connection to the camping ban itself sort of poisoned the well of of this whole effort to create camping sites. Mm-hmm. I mean, the city's done this before, right? Did it during the hepatitis A outbreak? In- this very same one, mm-hmm. yeah. So, and back then you said wasn't as <laughs> it wasn't as controversial. As controversial. I, I still wonder what this ban will do because I think a lot of people are saying, well, you're criminalizing the tent encampments that exist and this is their option, which means this is something of a jail, even though you, you can leave and all that stuff. But it's still seen as like, you can't be here under the threat of criminal prosecution. Thus, you can only be here, which again, seems to indicate it's a kind of jail. But I think that... What's what's really interesting, though, is is how police decide to use this ban, because I'm seeing more and more indication that it's not the prosecution that that the mayor and the police are enthusiastic to do. What they're enthusiastic to do is have a tool to move people along. I think that this should better be characterized as the move people along ordinance that they They have been looking for and wanting something that they could use to say, you need to leave. 
you need to move along. Mm-hmm. You and and that every time we say, well, why don't you just prosecute the quality of life crimes that you're talking about at these encampments? They say, we can't do that until we see them do something wrong. We see them brandish a weapon. We see them uh, punch somebody. We see them, uh, you know, defecate or something. Then we can act. But if we don't see them, we can't do that. And this ordinance, all it takes for them to, to act is to see them camping, right? And that definition of camping itself is a little bit vague. So you can go and ask them to move along a lot easier. And if they refuse, like we've heard from some of the, the, the homeless residents that they might want to do or that they might take it as a protest, yeah. then it might escalate up through the, the progression of enforcement all the way to a misdemeanor or even um, actual incarceration. Mm-hmm. But I think that, that the move along part is what they're looking forward to. That's fascinating. I feel like because a lot of people, I mean, in response to this ban, and I think even uh, council member Monica Montgomery Stepp was asking, mm-hmm. what about, because in the city council meeting, the first time that they were discussing this ban, a lot of what was mentioned was, you know, crimes that were being committed by homeless people. And we've reported on some of that. And I think her questioning was, what about these crimes can you not prosecute now with the laws that we have? And what you bring up is really interesting because yeah, it's not was- that they want to prosecute or, you know, maybe they do. I don't know. But they want them to move along. And with any of those other things, they just couldn't really. Well, th- that was their response, right? They said, we have to witness it. We can't, yes, of course we can do narcotics enforcement, but we have to witness it. Uh, yes, of course, uh, brandishing weapons illegal, but we have to witness it. Even if somebody else witnesses it, we can't act on that. And I think that, that if they were more direct in response to that, they, were, they would say like, well, now the probable cause is set by the tent itself. The tent itself is doing something wrong and we're witnessing that and thus we can take action on it and that that will be the big change going forward. You know, one thing that I, I the more we've talked about this uh, that I think is really interesting is is the camping ban to me and it, it almost signifies that the mayor's office and, and Stephen Whitburn, they view not the fact that people are homeless as the crisis, they view the fact that it's so visible as the crisis. I mean, this this ban itself feels more like a broom than it is, <laughs> you know, an open door to a new house or an open door to a tent. Um, and from that perspective, you see that this is all about managing visibility. Uh, our reporter Will Huntsbury always talks about this. This ban is, is a street sweeping ban, <laughs> mm-hmm. or a street sweeping ordinance, essentially. Uh, which again, it's it's a it's a move people along situation. It's not a it's not necessarily uh, incarcerate them, although <laughs> yeah, although that that can happen. And and even this safe campsite, for example, uh, KUSI, the master of of uh, two faces. Um, on on every issue, you know, they post a, a picture of 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 the safe camping site and, and with with the the um, caption "Outdoor Jail" or Mayor Todd Gloria's safe sleeping site. I, I think all of this has just gotten so toxic. I, I don't yeah. I don't understand how how we look back at any of the discussion of the past couple months and see that that any of it was productive. 
I think the mayor would take exception to what you said and would mm-hmm. say like, yes, I, I believe fervently in, in housing mm-hmm. and I pushed for housing and I want more housing, but there's just, it's, it's, it's all, there's a lot of things in the way of that and we're trying real hard to get there and it's going to be a while. And, and in the meantime, I do think if, again, if you poured some like truth serum down him and he started talking, <laughs> he would say like, however, what we've done is created a place that attracts people more than it makes them feel uncomfortable about being on the streets and that we have to change, as he puts it, the expectation and that the expectation for a long time has been that you can camp on the street mm-hmm. and that we are going to communicate very clearly that you can't mm-hmm. and that that's over. And I think that's a really interesting step but this is absolutely a, a sweeping thing now what he'll also say is that we have done a lot to increase our capacity and our support for homeless individuals and the places that they can go in fact when he was talking to the city council about the ban this is what he said unsafe camping ordinance is not a standalone solution in fact it comes after we have collectively worked together to expand shelter capacity by 70 percent so our Will Huntsbury took that as a fact check challenge, a classic voice fact check, <laughs> and uh, took it on and decided to look into that. Uh, uh, Andrea, what did he find? So it's all determined by where they start the clock for where they start start counting. Basically, they start the count on um, a day in April 2021. Uh-huh. This is um, after the convention center closed, which they had opened during the pandemic to house homeless individuals. At at that point, on that day that they begin the count, shelter capacity was at 1,071 beds. In the city of San Diego, there were 1,071 beds for people who were homeless to use. Yes. And And this was in April 2021. 2021. And where in Todd Gloria's reign as mayor does that April date fall? That's four months after he came into office. Mm -hmm. Um, So four months after he came into office, they start the count April 2021. There's 1,071 beds up to June 2023 when now we have 1,805 beds. So if you do the math there, yes, 70%. Mm -hmm. However, our Will Huntsbury, he looked at January 2020 to compare to June 2023 in January 2020, we had 1,409 beds, shelter capacity. When you compare those two numbers, it's 28%, not 70%. Yeah, so January 2020. Now, let's let's put the April number into context. April 2021, when, this, when, when Todd Gloria starts his count and compares it to where we're at now with the 70% increase, that was a time when shelters were not allowed to have as many people because of the social distancing requirements imposed during the pandemic, right? And so comparing that artificially lowered time with with the current time is it's a, a little off. It'd be like <laughs> what did somebody say? It'd be like comparing Yeah, I would be be saying that, you know, w- schools have increased in-person instruction by a thousand percent since yeah. April of 2020. <laughs> right, right. That that there was so there's obviously 
an artificially lowered situation at that point. And now there's no restrictions mm-hmm. uh, related to the pandemic. And yeah. so it's a lot higher. So yeah, the reason to go back to the time before that is like, what was his predecessor offering versus what he's offering? And 28% increase is not nothing. Right. It's not something to dis- discount. Great job on that. That's nearly 30% increase in the number of spots available for people who are struggling. But it's not 70%. And and why why do you think Todd or his staff or his comms folks, whoever cooked up this number, why, why do you think they felt the need to just get so tricky with these numbers? I mean, thirty percent, like you said, is 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 not nothing at all. I'm not sure if it's tricky as much as it's there. They have decided again. They made a decision somehow in the last six months. I would mm-hmm. say last four or five months, where they were going to stop treating this as something that they had to apologize for like that they, they were they were done uh, just being feeling bad about the situation that mm-hmm. they were done uh, you know for instance they used to take every measurement of how bad homelessness was as an attack mm-hmm. as like a as a vulnerability that you were poking at if you pointed out how bad homelessness downtown was or something it was like it was seen as a personal sort of attack on the mayor and I think what they decided to do over the last four or five months is change their approach and say, no, 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 no. We're going to meet this situation with something just as strong as it demands, that it's a crisis and we're going to meet it. And what they've chosen is this sort of punitive approach, this like we yeah. are not going to welcome people anymore to to sleep on the streets. We are going to set that expectation, as we said, higher that they're not allowed to be there anymore, to send the message that we are going to be just as ferocious about uh, not allowing this to develop as we are about the creation of opportunities and housing and shelter. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for this to have both sides of it. When they presented the ban to city council, the big blowback they got was that they weren't matching the ban with, adequate shelter uh-huh. and that was the hit that uh former mayor kevin faulkner hit them with which was that like they, they they weren't offering enough shelter and so what they've decided to do is say no we are we have done a lot of shelter and so it's important for them to uh, uh sort of i guess emphasize if not exaggerate mm-hmm. what they've done on that side as much as possible and so i think they want to be able to tell the community with a straight face that we are not just trying to sweep people we're trying to shelter as well. Mm-hmm. And and they're trying to deal with the fact that there aren't enough shelter spots. And so, you know, pointing out how fast they've gone to to make up that difference is is a key part of it. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. My wife texted me the other day. She had just gone to um, the Home Depot at Sports Arena, and she had been asked if she wanted to fund uh, pothole replacement and uh, transit uh, and transit to the airport and all kinds of things. And she, and she was she texted me and she said, "Is this real?" And I was like, "Well, I haven't heard about this. <laughs> How is that real?" And turns out she'd scooped me, <laughs> and they were circulating yet another 
effort to raise a half cent sales tax countywide to fund part of Sandag's big transportation plan, including mm. connecting to the airport, transit improvements, and some money, just a little bit, set aside for pothole replacement and street repair across the county. Mm-hmm. That, though, trust me, will will be high up in how they pitch <laughs> both the signatures and eventually the campaign. So remember, this is uh, this is being sponsored by a coalition of labor unions. We've seen this before. Uh, it, it failed last year when they wanted to do the same thing, but they didn't collect enough signatures. They found out even though they put millions of dollars into this effort that they actually had come up short with signatures. Now they claim that maybe they lost boxes at the registrar's office or maybe they got miscounted or whatever, but regardless, it didn't get on the ballot. Mm. Uh, so here's another attempt to it. Now it seems a little bit smaller, so I'm not sure how it'll have more success, but uh, they say they are, they've are they already turned in 15,000 signatures. They're doing great. Uh, they got a lot of support. The main support behind it is from IBEW, the electrical workers. Now, they don't have much interest in pothole replacement other than that they drive on them as well. <laughs> but they're interested in building the transit, of course, and a few other things. The laborers are involved, Lee Una, and the carpenters are involved. And then a, a bevy of environmental and climate change groups are also supporting it. So uh, y- we always hear about half cent sales tax, but that yeah. seems like such an abstract number. Is there an idea or a projection of how much this would raise a year? Well, here's how I can answer that, Jake. <laughs> so in 2004, they extended the half-cent sales tax that already existed. Mm-hmm. They projected it would bring in $14 billion. But our investigative reporting revealed that, in fact, it was only on track to bring in about $9 billion over the 40 years that it was in place. Wow. And so they used that money to... Uh, leverage state and national sources. So if this, if, you know, if you ever hear like Biden passes the infrastructure bill Mm -hmm. and the bill has $30 billion for uh, transit. And uh, what usually happens is the federal government will go to a place like San Diego and say like, do you have any projects? Mm -hmm. And if you have, you know, a third funded locally of that project and a third funded from the state, then the federal government will come in and put in that last third. So they'll put like five on it. Yeah. And then you uh, can build that project. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of what happened with like the mid-coast trolley and stuff like that. So I think that if the last one was projected to bring in $9 billion, this one probably projected to bring in like 12 or something. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's how that works. And they want to be able to use it, of course, to leverage for other things. So that is interesting for a couple reasons. Now, one is... They try. They tried in the past, of course, to get a half cent sales tax increase through Sandeg itself, and and approved by the voters. But in order to do that, when it's Sandeg itself, they have to get two thirds of the voters to support it. Two thirds of the voters to support anything is very difficult. There's already going to be a set block that opposes everything, and so getting two thirds has always traditionally been very hard. I think they got like 56 percent, right? So uh, what happened, of course, since then is a uh, uh, court ruling that said that if it's a citizen's initiative not put on by the government itself, the citizens can make a law themselves if just a majority of citizens do that. And if the law says to raise taxes, 
then that law can go into effect with just a majority of voters. Mm. And so that's why there's been now two, this is the second effort to raise signatures, to put something on the ballot, to raise taxes for this sort of transit slash road slash get to the uh, airport with a train plan and and potholes in place. So, And how realistic is it to ever have a train to the airport. I mean, is that is that really something that could happen with this with this new half cent tax? It is because the airport itself was required to put aside so much money mm. for that possibility, and the new terminal is being built with a like a, a way to do it easily. Oh, okay. So uh, it is possible uh-huh. now. Whether it's a good use of money, I think, is a fair question. Like it's. <laughs> It's one thing, like if the if the trolley, uh, if the if the airport was really far away from downtown and and they needed a train to get to it mm-hmm. to save all the car trips there, but it's not very far from downtown and there's already like nice convenient bus service to it. Yeah. That said, it is weird that the trolley goes right past the airport and still is not a nice like easy connection to it. Now um, that is also interesting because. The mayor of San Diego, Todd Gloria, along with city councilman Raul Campillo, put or have been working behind the scenes on their own half-cent sales tax increase for the city of San Diego so that they can pay for all kinds of things that they want there, to pay Mm -hmm. cops more, to uh, fix roads more and parks more, to pay people more, to... uh, and to serve the homeless situation more. They both aren't going to work good together, right? Yeah. It's one thing to have, like, if you had, like, a property tax increase on the same thing as, like, a sales tax increase. But when you have two sales tax increases, which means you're basically voting to increase your sales tax by, uh, you know, a full uh, percentage point, that's that's not insignificant. That that makes a difference to people's lives, especially the poorest people, because they, they usually spend more of their income mm-hmm. on things. And so uh, that's not what they would like. And so I think it's really interesting that they're both sort of sticking to their guns. I talked to Gretchen Newsom, who's helping run this for the IBEW, the, the electricians union. And she's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're gung-ho. Uh, our union members and everybody are, are seeing great response to this. Uh, our polling shows that people want this. We're going forward with it and nobody's asked us to not. Mm-hmm. And then the mayor's office is making clear that no, they still want to pursue this. Now, for the mayor's thing, the, the law is this. If you do a tax for a special thing like a stadium or something specific, it requires a two-thirds vote. But if you just put a tax on the ballot that says, just give the government more money, then it's just a 50% plus one. Now, it seems kind of uh, backwards. It does seem counterintuitive, yeah. Except for that's the point, right? They know that it's easier to pass a tax if you say specifically what it's for. And so they put that at a higher threshold. But if you just say, like, we just want to give the government of the city hall more money, then they put it at a lower percent. They're like, good try, good try, try for it. (laughs) And so um, that'll be really interesting. Now, they'll probably try to get around it a little bit by passing a resolution on the side that says, if by chance we get more money, we'll use it for X, Y, and Z. Hmm. But uh, just as a tool for messaging about the right about the sales tax. Now, at the same time, the 
Municipal Employees Association, the largest union of city employees, they combined with the Parks Foundation and the Libraries Foundation to put forward that ballot initiative to raise a parcel tax. Now, a parcel tax is different than a property tax. A property tax measures the value of a property and adds a tax on that per dollar of property you own. Mm -hmm. A parcel tax is just a flat fee per parcel that you own. And they want to do that flat fee to raise money for libraries and parks. And and in particular, things like Parks After Dark, these wonderful programs that are going on Mm -hmm. around the community, but also to serve some of the parks like actual infrastructure need. Mm. That they collected uh, and they thought enough signatures but the registrar of voters said you didn't have. They are now suing the registrar of voters because they say a bunch of those signatures were thrown out for no good reason. Like somebody would, like, just had like a different capitalization of their of their home address versus their, you know, official uh, address stuff like that. Yeah. And so they're trying to get that in place. So that could also go on the ballot. And at the same time, the housing federation is is trying to support its own initiative that would go on the ballot that would add a transaction tax for every property worth more than $2.5 million when it sells, it would put a tax on that sale. So if you sold your your home for $2.5 million, Jacob, your your $2.5 million my, man. My $2.5 million home. Yes. Yeah. Uh, then it would, uh, it would add a tax to that, which could be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that would go to fund affordable housing. Mm. And so they want that on the ballot as well. And so there are a lot of talk, there's a lot of talk at City Hall and other places now about like which ones really are going to make it, which ones the mayor is going to support. Is he going to oppose this Sandag one because it messes with his plan for the city one? Or Mm -hmm. is he going to try to support both, which adds a lot of complexity and potential problems. So Yeah, well, presumably the more tax measures you put on a ballot kind of the more they drag each other down. Is that sort of the idea of, that's the, of common, the strategy? That's the common sense. Now, yeah. I talked to uh, Michael Zucchetti, who runs the general, he's the general manager of the Municipal Employees Association. Uh-huh. He says he doesn't see that in the data. He has no reason to believe that. But he does say if you have two things that are the same, like they're both sales tax in, uh, increases, that that's going to be a problem. And he'd like yeah. to see that avoided. Huh. That makes sense. Do you have a particular type of tax you like the most? <laughs> What? <laughs> I think I think mansion transit mansion oh, transaction tax these? yes mansion tax parcel tax sales tax I think estate tax is pretty cool estate taxes yeah like a wealth like you're passing wealth along you yeah pay. like when you know when you die you got to give some back to the state yeah I think that's pretty cool <laughs> in terms of names I think the mansion tax sounds cool yeah. That's that, a good that, name. Is, that is pretty cool too. I think they that's probably well they'll go with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the estate tax could They're not be, gonna give you credit. The estate tax could be viewed as the haunted mansion tax. True. True. <laughs> wow. I'm so, I'm so glad we're all in agreement <laughs> about that. Anyway, check out those. So we will keep track of which ones go forward and which ones don't, and the impacts and stakes involved, of course, if they do make the ballot. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in Greater Little Italy, the eastern edge of Greater Little Italy in downtown San Diego. We're not actually close to Little Italy, except that we are in Greater Little Italy, and we are the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in that general vicinity. This is our last podcast of the fiscal year. Please help ensure 
boys starts out next year strong and can sustain itself for the foreseeable future. We have a, a good and pure business model, but it depends on people like you who value it to push the button. So if you could do that, do that now at VOSD.org slash pod people. That's VOSD.org slash pod people. You can become a mayor, a member for as little as $3 a month with a bunch of great benefits, not the least of which is independent journalism thriving in your community. Join now at VOSD.org slash pod people. That's VOSD.org slash pod people. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor-in-chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is our managing editor. Jacob McQuinney is our education reporter. Nate Johns, our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.